Hello everyone and welcome to episode 303 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now coming back on the podcast for a record-breaking fourth time is Neil Blomkamp, an amazing film director, an incredible person all round and genuinely a friend. So I can't believe that he's back to talk all about his latest film, Gran Turismo. I was lucky enough to see this film a couple of weeks ago and it was pure fun. I didn't know when they announced what it was going to be like. I didn't know if I'd like it. I couldn't tell. I'm not really a massive gamer. I've never been really into cars, but it was just great. It was entertaining. One of the best edited films I've seen in a very long time. A great cast. And I was really surprised when I saw Neil Blomkamp's name attached to it when they first announced it. But honestly, he's done wonders. It's so good. And I can't wait to share the chat with you in just a couple of minutes time. But in true typical Mark and Me fashion, I always like to use the intro for every episode to talk about my last episode. I was joined by the amazing musician, Willie J. Healy. And do you know what? This episode blew up. He's amazing. Like I said on the last episode, I think he's like a reincarnation of George Harrison. His music is beautiful. I love his work ethic. And he was just an all-round nice, great guy. So thanks to everyone that took the time to listen. You may have seen over the last couple of days, I've actually already released the interview with Neil Blomkamp on my brand new YouTube channel. You can actually watch me do the interview in person. And you know what? It's really doing well. If you haven't checked it out, you can go on Mark and Me and there's a link there to my YouTube or just go on YouTube and type in Mark and Me. There's four videos up there right now and I'm putting everything into this because I've had so many people for so long asking me to get those videos out there and now I've done it. So the official channel is out there. I've called it Mark and Me TV. You've got Biffy Clyro, Alex Winter, Ash and now Neil Blomkamp and I'm going to keep on bringing you content on there each and every week and there's some incredible stuff coming up. But today it's all about the amazing director, Neil Blomkamp. So here's me and Neil talking all things film. So Neil, for the fourth time, which now makes you the leading guest on Mark and Me, welcome back to the Mark and Me podcast. Thanks, man. It's an honor. I can't believe this is the fourth time and it's been a couple of years since we last spoke. But what I really wanted to delve deep into today was Gran Turismo. I've just been lucky enough to watch it this week and... I kind of want to know how it all came about that it landed in your hands. Was there a certain talk that you'd had or a project that you'd been thinking about for a long time? Or how did it kind of come to that discussion where you took it on? Well, yeah, it was it was very unusual. I mean, when, when I was shooting it, I kept saying to the crew that I couldn't believe I was shooting a sports drama <laughs> because I never imagined that to be in my future. Um, but what happened was I... I had written this much darker um, science fiction film that I sold to Columbia. And I think um, the the short story is basically they wanted a massive actor in the lead because it's unknown IP and it's uh, relatively expensive. And I spent, I spent a long time, I spent months waiting for this one actor to say yes or no. And it got so irritating and tedious that I, was going to go and just work on a different film and leave essentially. Um, now I think I'm shooting that uh, dark sci-fi piece that I wrote next year, which I'm pretty excited. Oh, that's about. exciting. That's a bit yeah, of, it's uh, pretty, a bit it's of pretty exclusive awesome. there. Yeah. But um, so in the process of me going like this actor is taking too long and this is incredibly irritating and I'm going to go do something different. They said like, Hey, why don't you check out Gran Turismo? Cause we're, we are on the verge of shooting this. And I was like, that doesn't even make any sense. Like it's a racing simulator. You can't make, a look. I don't know what that story would look like. And so I read, I read the script that they had and a bunch of things became clear to me. Like one, uh, I didn't know that it was based on a true story. I didn't even know there was a story. Um, I had no idea about GT Academy. I didn't know about Jan Mardenborough. I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, and the second thing is I am obsessed with cars. I love cars. Um, you know, like it's it's sort of a side interest next to next to filmmaking. And I've actually personally owned three of the GTRs that are that are the cars that the kids train in in GT Academy. So I was reading the script about this other passion that I have. And 
And I was struck by how interesting of a way into a video game film it was to, to not be inside the narrative of the video game, but to make the movie entirely about the game, but, but still be in the real world that we live in. We're not in the narrative yeah. of, of this particular game. And I thought that was a very unique way into making a game movie. Um, but really the primary thing was that I, I, I realized that the, the film left me with a feeling of movies that were usually sports dramas that I'd seen as a, as a kid or as a teenager that had always left me with a feeling of sort of inspiration, right? Or, or a, a very positive aspirational feeling about them. Yeah. And it's not exactly the same as movies that inspired me to want to get into filmmaking, um, but it's but it's it's a it's a feeling of leaving the movie theater feeling feeling um, lifted and feeling yeah. sort of inspired. And it dawned on me that like there was no plan in future for me to ever do anything like that. And it, I kind of all of a sudden I was like, I would love to make a film that moved some 13 year old the way that I felt when I watched, you know, something like Rocky or whatever the film may have been. And it really had an effect on me. It was like, I, I want to I want to actually direct this and I want to try to direct it in a way that is as emotionally uplifting as I can do. Um, and the, the, the way into it, besides it being a game movie, which I thought was interesting, was the, was the cause. It was like this, this whole world of cars that I live inside of outside of filmmaking that just, I thought that would be really, really fun. So that's basically what happened. It was a very strange unusual set of circumstances and um it's kind of how the how the film came to be you know i kind of found it really fascinating then when you talked about that feeling you got when you were in the cinema as a kid and yeah. you watched something like rocky i wasn't there obviously in yeah, the 70s yeah. when rocky came out but my dad would often watch it on dvd or vhs at home and i'd get that feeling of wanting to punch the air you know after watching the film like anyone can yeah like the underdog can always win yeah. Um, if you put your mind to it and I, it sounds crazy, but I text my friend and I said, have you seen Gran Turismo yet? He's like, no, not yet. And I'm like, it felt like the karate kid, but in cars, yeah. you know, karate, and... karate kid was another reference. Actually, it was, it was, yeah. uh, absolutely a very similar, um, a very similar structure, you know, and goal, I think definitely with the leadership. And, you know, if you look at Dave's character, I think you can kind of look at him as like a Mr. Miyagi that kind of gets one over and then sees mm. his past glory but i i just when i've seen people talk about gran turismo a lot of people say neil blomkamp's doing it like are you what this is crazy but didn't that feel like a challenge to kind of show that you can not just do sci-fi or you can do horror you can step into that kind of family entertainment and feel good film but also deliver a story that is so passionate to you that you get to play with those cars yeah i mean i you know i definitely there's there are definitely um directors out there that that will do projects maybe that they're not passionate about but i i, I don't think i would be able to um no. you know i i just yeah i don't i don't think that that would i don't think i would be able to like turn up on set so i think the venn diagram is something like something that i'm very passionate about and usually that overlaps with i mean you know i want to work in fantasy i, I really want to work in fantasy i haven't done that yet but like fantasy horror obviously science fiction. Um, and, 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 and it also, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there are things in, in, in that um, possible, you know, list of, of possibilities that are outside of what audiences may not expect from me. So it's like, if the Venn diagram is, I'm passionate about it and it's a topic that seems out of left field, it it's, I'm still passionate about it. Yeah. So, uh, but but the other way to look at it, I think I think people that are not creative people um, that are much they they view choices like this in a much more cold and cynical kind of light. So they they're like, you know, the like they struggle to find a reason for why I would direct it, you know. And I That's and fair. I think it's when when you're creative and when you're when you're really um, someone who who loves creating things and is 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 artistic i think you understand more on some level that it's like you the person is probably drawn to some elements of it very deeply i mean you're not going to commit like in this case 14 years or 14 years 14 months of hard work for something that you're not totally invested in like why would you do that so um so yeah i i think i i would say i'm equally passionate about it as as the other films that i've done and 
And it, it to me, as, as someone, if I watched the film when, when I was completing it, it feels like, to me, it hits the bullseye of what it was trying to do, which is, which is basically this, this, this uplifting feeling, you know, and, and the, the themes and the ideas behind it always felt more universal to me than either just video games or just car racing. It was more of a universal, if you believe in yourself and people don't believe in you, just stick to it. And maybe in the end, you can actually push through. And that, I just, I just like that. And, but it, but it really does come down to this thing where I, my a lot of my own view of humanity or of the globe is kind of pessimistic. Like I think, I think the way that I sort of operate, I apparently, I, I guess this is like a psychiatrist couch kind of point of view, but <laughs> counseling session, here we go. Yeah. It seems to be that like on a personal level, I like the idea of humans being warm, being warm and being compassionate. And there's probably some humanity inside the characters that I'm interested in on an individual basis. And then as far as like humanity as a whole goes, it becomes ever more negative and pessimistic. Um, and I, that's typically like how I see the world and how I kind of, you know, have directed stuff in the past. So it's just an interesting thing that I was suddenly aware of that it's like, well, why not try to make something that is outwardly positive, you know, and the world, the, the, I actually believe the world needs more of that. Like I genuinely believe it. So you know, it, it fit like it was like a hand in glove kind of situation that just felt at that time, like perfectly creatively suited to me. There does seem a big absence at the moment. And I know I'm a bit of an 80s kid that's stuck in my ways, but there doesn't seem to be the feel good films as much as they used to be. And if you look at someone and it's it's not in comparison to the yeah. sort of budget, but a John Hughes film, you put that on, yeah. on a Sunday no, you for will sure. automatically feel better about life if you have. No, I mean, I, absolutely. You know. I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. But I, you know, I think I, I must make it clear that I'm not. I, I never really come from the point of view of of mandating what I think society should do or what I think other people should do. Right? Like yeah. I'm incredibly individualistic, and I have a very sort of individualistic point of view of of how I think people should lead their lives. And that, that spills over into, I'm not dictating that I think society needs more films like this. I think I, I needed to direct a film yeah. that had these ingredients in it. But I think if you analyze where society is, is at, like if you look at Western culture, we are in this kind of um, deconstructionist sort of postmodern era, right? So when you, when, you, when you reference films like The Karate Kid, a lot of, a lot of the movies that you're talking about um, – you know the, the John Hughes films or or Rocky, they they tend to they're they're unironic. They're very they they are exactly what they are um, portraying themselves to be. They're genuinely yeah. uplifting, right? Which is exactly what Gran Turismo is. And in this kind of deconstructionist phase that we're in now, we're sort of postmodernizing and sort of re reimagining re things in a in a in a deconstructionist sort of way. And a lot that can be negative. It can be pessimistic. I mean, I, I happen to also like it, but it overall as a society, as a feeling, it feels we're not necessarily think, think the future is not as bright. I don't think as, as, as it once was. And I mean, there's, a, you know, you, you enter into like geopolitical slash philosophical discussions when you go down that road about like, why is that the case? Yeah. But it, I do think that it is the case. So making very clearly a non-ironic, straightforward, borderline 1980s feel-good film was was 100% the goal. Was there a certain element when you were given the, obviously you said at the moment that we started recording today, you didn't know the story of Gran Turismo. You didn't know that it was this academy. I, I knew the game. Yeah. yeah. I, I, all I knew was the, well, I mean, game is a weird word for Gran Turismo, but I knew the racing simulator. Yeah. And that was, that was all I knew. And I knew it fairly well because of my love of cars, but I, for some reason, I just didn't know that this whole academy ever existed. So, so were you the guy that had it on the PlayStation back in the day? Were you a gamer that played this game or was it all no. new to you? No, it was neither of those. My, my brother is as into cars as I am and he has always been into, into games like Gran, Gran Turismo. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've, always, I've always experienced it like sort of on the peripheral edges. Like for me, like I'm, if I play games, it's PC 
only. I've never really been into consoles. No. I mean, as a kid in South Africa, I was into I was into consoles. If I was playing games like you know, I mean, the the main one really was Mortal Kombat um, on on a lot of the Sega systems. But as as a as an adult, it's like I just don't use consoles ever. You know, it just doesn't. It's not in my it's not in my vicinity. So. I don't really have experience playing Gran Turismo religio- re- religiously, but I have I have a lot of I have had a lot of exposure to it. So I suppose when you were told about this project and then you said you invested so many months in it to storyboard this and get an idea of how you're going to tell the story, because for me it was thrilling the whole way through. Um, I was on Good. the edge of my seat, and I'm not just saying this because you're here today. I couldn't even imagine how hard the editing was because it seemed. Mm. like 100 miles per hour, 200 miles per hour the whole way through. And yeah. the amount of different shots in that editing that you've done it blows my mind. It surely is the busiest film you've ever done. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely true. And it is also, it was part of the architecture of how the film was set up in the beginning. Um, we, we had four editors and we had two primary editors um, who I literally cannot say enough good things about. Um like just i just love them i really really yeah. love them and um the third editor was uh an an editor who had never worked in in films before i'm not even sure if he's done anything narrative like tv or anything like that but his thing is car commercials so he really comes out of like extremely aggressive porsche and mercedes-benz commercials of just you know pure cinema like pure adrenaline cutting like that's it like there's no story there's just like it's just sound and image and um and even our two primary narrative editors were very good at that as well but they were following story more and yeah it was like it was like assembling the right editorial team assembling the right uh camera department that could not 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 just camera department but like director of photography and camera yeah so this idea of prioritizing quantity of footage and um, and treating the races almost like real events that we were documenting rather than a synthetic, you know, um, conforming reality to what the camera wants approach. Uh, and then and then the third thing was to push for this idea of kind of disassembling the cars and getting into the mechanics of the cars and into yeah. the mechanics of the transmissions and the engines and stuff. And sort of remixing all of that. And then it still took, it still took like a ton of, of editing. You know, I was, I was living in LA for seven months with those editors, like doing that stuff. And it was, it was a long time. You can see it's paid off though. Like the word is adrenaline. That's what I felt throughout this whole film. And to see those scenes of uh, the lead actor, obviously going in and out of the car in his bedroom, but then becomes this world and the car takes over him. Those mm. visuals were flawless. Like that, that looked incredible. And it took me back to being a kid and my mate having one of those steering wheels and me being jealous because my parents couldn't afford one on my PS1 or whatever it was. But the way you created that kind of virtual car that he was in, that he was going in and out to create that kind of mindset of being in that world. That was astonishing, dude. That looked unbelievable. Cool. I'm glad, I'm glad you feel that way. I mean, for me, the stuff that I love was... Uh, the FPV drone photography yeah. on the real, real racetracks. Um, that was, that was cool. And it, it gives it, it gives it a, the thing that it helps with besides being cinematically interesting, it also really helps with positioning and understanding where the cars are in, in terms of the race. I mean, I yeah. stole, you know, if I wasn't making a video game film, I probably wouldn't have been able to steal this idea of like holographically projecting the number of his car in the, in the crowd. So you can sort of always follow where Jan is but um, but the the drones allow for a, a it, it allows the audience to place themselves and and be be very clear about where he is and what he is doing, and then you can follow it in a way that is either from a motorsports perspective or almost from like a character perspective, and you always know where he is. So that to me, I that's the stuff that I look at and I and I really like it. I have to say though. You know, when I when I signed on to it, I was like, I want to make this uplifting kind of positive film, and I'm sure it'll be fun to hang out with a bunch of cars and a bunch of stunt drivers, and we'll just film some cool shit. And it ended up being almost the most difficult film I, I think I've done in terms of production. It was so much more complicated and 
mentally taxing than I would have expected to wrangle that number of cars on all of the different tracks with all of the different stunt drivers. It's like, it's much harder, I think, than it, than it appears. It, it looks kind of chaotic in the way that obviously it's filmed and there's so much demand. And like you said, with the, the numbers above the cars, putting yourself in there, mm. but all the different shots that take place on those tracks, I, I honestly don't know how you'd keep track of it. It just blows my mind. I was just sitting there the whole time thinking this is like the editor's nightmare because it's chaotic. It is. It's frantic the whole way through these races, but it does make you put yourself in the driver's seat. And my heart was racing on the edge of my seat, especially when the the story isn't perfect. It isn't that the first race he goes to, he wins, gets a gold medal and gets a massive uh, trophy and then becomes the best driver of all time. It's mm. the long road and even the big crash scene. Like I felt that crash like I've never seen. When I saw the film Super 8 uh, and there was a train crash, with mm. AJ, um, JJ Abrams, I felt that crash. Today, watching this again, I felt that crash like I was in that car. And that was, it was quite suffocating seeing the accident, you know? Yeah, you know, one one person that, that was absolutely integral to the film was Victor Muller, the VFX supervisor. Yeah. And um, those, those inserts of Jan really help sell that crash and and those were done in prague um but the idea behind i think that one of the one of the reasons that i think that that sequence feels kind of realistic is we sort of bound ourselves by by certain real world parameters that we weren't allowed to step out of and that even includes like for example, so the, the the main the main shot is a is a panning shot where we pan with his car when it hits the barrier and yeah. then when it flips, and it essentially it looks like either a motorsports angle or a news angle. It's in, it's incredibly real world, right? There's there's nothing synthetic about it. And what we used to have in the edit was we had a drone shot, which we've obviously very clearly established that we're using drones and like it's it's a filmmaking language in this film that the audience would have accepted because we've set it up well. Yeah. And the, the drone was moving towards the car as it was careening towards us over the fence. And it was a very cool shot, but it was also it was also synthetic. You don't in in motorsports you don't see a crash from that angle. It just doesn't happen. You Never. see a crash like that in Hollywood. And it was a a very specific decision to remove that and to triple down on the idea of only the pan you know it's 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 like kind of a it's a decisive move to go we we're only trying to present this as realistically as possible and so i think i think the simplicity of that brings brings a level of realism to it that makes the audience feel a little bit more in jeopardy and then we we did the internal shots that i was talking about with with victor in prague where you, you, we. I wanted to slow time down in there and be with Jan as as yeah. that happens and as he's rolling. So it's a bunch of of profile shots. But the reason I bring Victor up is because in the POV shots from Jan's eyes, as as the car ultimately ends up upside down on the roof with the lawn, those shots are 100% CG except for the lawn. Wow. So they're they're yeah. I mean, and it, you know, we we the timeline for this movie was crazy tight. So we kind of were looking at those. I'm not exaggerating. We were looking at those in gray, gray shaded, like Fong, low resolution renders two weeks before we delivered the film. That's mad. And it's like, that's, that's how pressured it was for time, but it's also incredible how photorealistic they ended up looking in the end. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of awesome. um, Given like what he did with the timeline that he had. Uh, but, you know, we that sequence had to feel as real as we could make it feel. And when we refer to the characters of this film, because that's what I think um, I wasn't expecting in this, the, the heart of the movie and the, the kind of mm-hmm. the, the, the relations of the mother and the father and the son relationship of this family and how he's kind of, the father's had success in the past and wants his son to do well, but also doesn't want to put his son at risk or at danger. Mm-hmm. Um, the casting I think was crucial and you must have been in your element when you got these incredible world famous actors and actresses that were part of this story because I don't think you could have done it with anyone else I think the the mm-hmm. David Harbour um, 
Orlando Bloom, Jerry Halliwell, who I wasn't expecting. You know, these performances were unbelievable. Yeah. Well, my, my, I mean, David Harbour, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you know, Dave, David and Archie really were, were these, I was just very lucky basically. Yeah. But, but the, the other person that, that is less mentioned that I, that I have always wanted to work with. And I was so stoked with what he did was Jaiman Hansu as his dad. Unbelievable. And yeah. And like the scene where he comes into his trailer, um, you know, to, to basically like reconcile with his son, you know, I just, I just love that guy. I mean, I've ever, ever since Amistad and, and Gladiator, you know, I've, I mean, it was, that was around the time I really wanted to try to get into directing. And I've, I watched those films and I was like, I really wish I could work with that dude one day. So I, I do agree with you. I mean, it's like, especially, especially Archie and David though. It's like what, what both of them did was just really cool, you know, and it's, they're both great to work with. Was it, um, cause obviously Orlando Bloom's character is this kind of slightly, he would get under my skin because it was like, you've, you're too focused on the business and you're not worrying about this person as a human being. You just wanted to get the results and be seen as having this achievement. Mm. But, um, just yeah, a, I mean, just some of that was actor. embellished. It was yeah. embellished as well because, you know, there was this there was this kind of drive to create conflict between him and David Harbour yeah. as much as possible. And I mean, I don't know Darren Cox well enough who it's based on, but I, I assume it's probably more, more, more caring or or, or compassion for the drivers themselves pro- yeah. in reality, probably from him. Um, so or- Orlando's character was was more like marketing specific you know it was like nissan marketing and very hyper focused on what his objectives were um but but you know at the same time you also you you want to be very clear about which character is doing what for for young for archie and the surrogate father was david harbour you know yeah. you can't really split that you, you've got to be very clear about who it is so he has his real father who he reconnects with and he has a surrogate father who gives him like incredibly valuable information. And ultimately at the end of the film, it's like, it's, it's David Harbor or Jack's win as well, you know? And it's, so it was, it was, it was a clear choice to do that. And um, Orlando did really well with, with what he had, you know, it was like well executed was it kind of um, any moments on set that really challenged you? Obviously, it's a very different film to your previous work, like District Nine or um, Chappie. It's it's completely different. The the theme, the story, yeah. the effects, everything. Were there times that you felt really challenged that you were like, I'm, I'm not sure how we're going to pull this shot off, or how we're going to use the right technology to make this look right to fit with the context of the film? It's not really. It's not really that kind of challenge. It's more. It's more the, it's like I was saying before, it's, it's the logistics of, yeah. of, it's the scale of production. Like the, the movie in some ways is a little bit more old school in the sense that it doesn't rely on in your face VFX and, and giant VFX um, sequences. So I think if you, if you were to look at something like superhero films of today and you compare their budget ratios their allocations of resources inside the budget you would see in you know probably in the 70s and the 80s i mean you know when you when you even i think even if you look at films that had visual effects back in the 80s the the ratio of vfx spend is probably like infinitely greater in today's superhero films right so to it actually means production to some degree is a little bit more limited and Gran Turismo was the opposite of that. It was it was like old school film production where it was massive upfront, mostly in camera stuff. So, and and that's not to take away from VFX. I mean, there were like one thousand one hundred VFX shots that were done. They're mostly wow. invisible VFX. So it's a shitload of VFX, but it's still it still meant that we had to shoot the entire movie basically for real with cameras. Yeah. And, and so it's not like there, there was no individual challenge where I didn't know how to do something. It was more the daily grind of just a very large and somewhat complex, almost like a, almost like a stamina test really than anything else. Does it make you now want to take a step back and do something a bit smaller on a lower budget that kind of feels more? Uh, well, I, I, I am. I am doing that actually. Like I'm doing a smaller, a smaller film that I'm starting 
soon. Um, it's not, it, I mean, it's not tiny, but it, it's smaller than It's not Gran on the Turismo. scale of Gran Turismo. No, no. Can you tell us anything at all about this film, even if it's just the, 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 <laughs> the genre or? The genre is uh, alien abduction. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and you start this definitely quite definitely soon. horror-ish. Yeah, quite soon. Oh, man, you're teasing me. <laughs> then you also said you've got something is it sci-fi in the works that you want to get quite involved or fantasy that you want to kind of delve into no no no, no. The, the one that i was saying was the project that i sold to columbia yeah. that ended up that ended up basically turning into gran turismo that that film i want to shoot next year that's that's a bigger that's a larger science fiction film that um that that's more like that it, it people will assume that's more like me i think yeah yeah and what about the Oats Studio stuff? Because that's some of my favorite things you've ever done. And everyone yeah, we talk about is love always wanting more of it. But it, it it felt so real and done so well. And all I speak to is a lot of people that are getting into film. And mm. everyone now is saying that's their textbook. That's their go-to because it just shows the techniques that you can do in-house in a studio. And if you do it right with the right people you can get it right. And I don't think there's any better example than Oates. It's some of the finest work I've ever seen. Yeah, I mean, I think AI is definitely going to... Technology is moving so quickly that it's hard to know what a version of that studio looks like three or four years from now. You know, it yeah. can, people really could be very, very, very self-sufficient in, in quite a short number of years from now, I think. Um, but yeah, I do. I totally love Oats. I mean, I love I love the the structure of the studio that we had built, and I also love a lot of the pieces that we made um, and the worlds that we were creating. Like Firebase is basically just insane. You know, it's unbelievable. It's like, but then everyone insane. everyone I see wants to see a film version of Firebase now, or a film yeah. version of you know a, a full feature. Which is that something you could ever do, or is it kind of you, you could? I past? mean. Raka would be easier to make. I think Firebase is so philosophical and contemplative. It's so it's that's that one may be more difficult. I think to to actually finance as an entire movie. It's maybe possible, but uh, but Raka is the one that I go to immediately because I I just I love how unrelentingly dark Raka is. It's unbelievable, dude. And I suppose. A lot of people that listen to this podcast are people that are trying to get into the film industry. And because it's changing so dramatically, even since we last spoke, how everything's moved on, and that's mm. only in the, the last couple of years, and with AI coming in, how do, how do you kind of see the industry going the way it is at the moment? Because AI kind of seems to be a hot topic where people are against it straight away. But I feel that you've got to accept it because it's here and it's going to stay. No, I mean absolutely. You know, like the yeah, the completely incorrect approach would be to pretend that's not it's not here. Yeah, I mean it's yeah. The the, the smarter thing to do would be look, to learn how to to learn how to use it and and stay out of the curve because it's not it's not going anywhere. It's it's just going to become more and more part of our lives. But it, I think, I think you know the fear with AI. It's it's it, for some reason it's become a film industry discussion. I, I you know actually I probably I do know why that is. I think the original fear with AI was that it would replace jobs that that it seemed to make more sense that it would replace. Yeah. So like automated truck drivers, you know, automated trucks, automated cabs, things like that. And I think artists probably have this like elitism where they're like, well, it can never replace us. But it's like actually one of the first things that it did with Midjourney and and ChatGPT and everything else is like it 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 actually can do artwork and and you know it's pretty insane like the level of of um and that's basically version one. You know, so yeah, that's, that's like out of the gates that's what it's yeah. doing. You know, like 10, 10 years from now, I mean it's gonna be completely indistinguishable from from humans. So I think the shock is, oh, it can it can replace a lot of white collar jobs, you know, like that's and and people I don't think were expecting that. So, but it's the wrong thing to do is is to kind of try to turn try to make it illegal or turn your back on it or keep it out of the room. Like it's just never ever going to happen, ever. So, so is this something you can see yourself, and you maybe already are, but are you trying to get involved with it to then use it as a tool for your next upcoming films? I mean, personally, it's not as it's not as interesting to me. I mean, my 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 bigger fear, you know, like I don't, I'm not really worried about some sort of Terminator Skynet style no. 
outcome. I don't really think that is going to happen. But what I what I do think is quite likely actually to happen is is a feeling for people in any job capacity in any job to suffer this immense level of redundancy that they're they've been replaced and you could have huge swaths of the population that have been replaced by something and made redundant and kind of don't they you, you know like one part of it is just your your income and your job and that's bad enough but another part of it is like if you really get philosophical about it it's like what 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 does it mean to be human you know yeah. like if if this can do it then what what are we and I, so there is a very negative um, societal, the way that society begins to perceive itself. I think if we go down that road, which we probably will go down, and and then obviously like you know we'll learn to we'll learn to work with it, and then maybe that it'll lead to a new boom and different frontiers that we never imagined. But so in in that capacity, with some sort of universal basic income that governments have to give the population, so they don't like riot because they have nothing, they have no jobs. Um, in that sort of negative world, you know, I think there'll be some level of human-made artistry that's still very interesting to humans. Um, but it, to me, on on a level of art of like what I'm interested in, I'm I'm still personally more interested in, you know, self-made stuff. So like I'm I'm not I'm not afraid of AI, and I'm no. not trying to keep it out of the room the way that I, I see a lot of people trying to do. But I'm also maybe not as interested. I'd rather have a conversation with an artist. I'd rather like, yeah. you know, like one, one thing that I'm obsessed with that I've never really done enough of in filming, I did a bit of it in Elysium, is our uh, model miniatures, right? Like like uh, Weta style, Lord of the Rings model miniatures or basically, Phenomenal. yeah, Star Wars, any anything from like the 70s or the 80s or Lord of the Rings. Um, it's like a huge goal of mine to like really start to get into models more. And you know, in that scenario, yes, you can use 3D printing, um, but really it's it's extremely, extremely human generated. You know, it's very tactile and it's like glue and uh, paints and urethanes and materials and sawdust and like, you know, wearing eye protection because it's so physical. It's non-digital. It's very, very analog. And I'm more interested in that than I am in really interacting with AI. I'm becoming more interested in real world stuff and less interested in computers, which is kind of interesting given that I, you know, used You've to just be done like, Gran Turismo. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that's the reason, but yeah. But, but anyway, like, so I don't, I don't think anyone knows where we're going. I think we're just, we're just, you know, we're in uncharted territory and we've built a society that is, so much smarter than we are and so much more complicated than humans are designed to sort of keep tabs on that it's it's in danger of running away from us and it's it's not good psychologically for humans you know if you if you lived in the middle of like the roman empire or or sumeria or like the beginning of agriculture or even if you were paleolithic or whatever it was like a hundred generations before you and like 50 generations ahead of you nothing was different this is what you did you know and life was that we're we're biologically designed to live and function at that level. We're not biologically designed to live with a societal upheaval, you know, in every fifty years, every twenty-five years, and then you just go down the scale, twelve point five years, you know, down. And and I mean, that's what the singularity is meant to be. It's like this compression yeah. until eventually, it's it's just information is is basically doubling or squaring itself every second you know and it's it does appear like that's the direction we're going in but we're not really designed to deal with it so it leads to a lot of psychological pressures for people in in unpredictable ways i was getting really excited then when you were talking about um miniatures again and figures and i've been watching quite a lot of videos on instagram and youtube recently of del toro who spends a lot of time painting figures for his fans and he shows you the process that he's gone through especially with his um stop animation stuff but hmm. there's a lost art i think in practical effects and when you look at films now for me one of my favorite films of all time is john carpenter's the thing um i watch that now and i i do not believe that's made in 1982 i still think it could be made only 10 years ago and it looks have you ever heard the stories less. have you heard the stories about rob Bottin on the thing have you heard this do you know no. Rob Bottin? 
I know the guy and he's an absolute genius and I know his work, but I don't know any stories about him. I don't know if this is true, but someone was telling me that apparently, because when he did the thing, I think he was like 18, right? Yeah, I know he was really young. He was like 19 or 18. destroyed him mentally because it was... The work yeah. he was doing is crazy. Well, that, that, that's what I was going to say. Like, I think he was like dehydrated and malnourished or something. And I think John Carpenter drove him to hospital at some point. <laughs> there, was, there was some insane story. And he was he was basically working like 23 hours a day on like Coke and pizza for like eight months. And like everything was his own stuff. You know, I mean, he was making everything. He was designing yeah. and manufacturing stuff. And then he just sort of like collapsed in the workshop and then carpenter was like bro you you need some electrolytes or something and was you know taken to hospital but he also designed robocop as well um and he's he's a i mean i that that's the kind of stuff that got me into the film industry initially like i love that stuff you know absolutely love it does it make you want to use more of it moving forward even though you've just come back off a huge computer generated and cgi fest are you are you now looking at wanting to return to something I know we've talked about a new horror and we've talked about that other project, but is there, is there a John Carpenter thing in you? Is there a, you know, that sort of feel? Well, you know, it's an interesting discussion because like the, the one part, what you're really asking is like, do you want to, do you want to work with practical effects and practical miniatures and stuff? And the answer yeah. is yes. The, the answer is yes. But, but when you say like the John, Com- John Carpenter thing feel, like the vibe of that movie, right? The thing that is really interesting about that is that at the time, Carpenter was using the most cutting edge visual effects. That's what it was. It just yeah. didn't happen to be computers. And it's, I think it's, it's one of the reasons, like when you look at Prometheus and you compare it to Alien, you know, I think one of, one of the criticisms with Ridley is like, why doesn't Prometheus look like it? Why doesn't it have the same feel and vibe, the analog vibe that Alien does, right? And as, as a younger person watching the two films, we can analyze that, right? But when you're Ridley in 1979, that is the most cutting edge version of technology. And then when you make Prometheus in 2011 or whatever, that is the most cutting edge version of technology. So his, it's like his direction and his way into it is probably the same thought process. You see what I mean? It's not. It's no, like, that's but, completely valid. Yeah. But aesthetically, it it result it results because there's such a large gap in time. It results in two different aesthetic visual palettes. It's two, they're two different. They're not congruent with one another. So it's it's a very interesting thing. So it's like Carpenter today remaking the thing, or if you could just magically have him appear today and have him make the thing, it probably involves shit ton of VFX, unless it was the actual living version of him that was trying to re-reference the film that he made back then. So. It, now today it means you're knowingly going retro which yeah. by the way i also think is super cool yeah so like i'm you know i always shoot on film like i have i have these um these super eight cameras like awesome. i mean i don't i'm in vancouver now but i don't really live in vancouver but i have these where i do live as well and i just am obsessed with anything organic and tangible and you know old school so i haven't really put it into films yet even i guess the most like that, I suppose, is District 9 because it's sort of retro VHS and super, yeah. uh, not super eight, but high eight video. So it has a shittiness about it that it's I like. It's got that sort of grain feel about it that makes it feel like it's not a stupid Yeah, it's like analog film. video. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, analog video. Um, yeah, that was actually also one of the first movies ever to be shot on red cameras, red one. Really? Yeah. Because, because of Peter Jackson, like PJ had bought a i think he bought like three or four of the prototype first red cameras off the assembly lines um and he was obsessed with them and he was like you should use these for district nine and and so we had i think we had two maybe of the first red ones on on d9 that's awesome yeah that's good advice from someone who knows what he's doing yeah jackson's really i mean so awesome with all of that retro stuff as well you know like like what Weta created with Lord of the Rings and even his own stuff like Brain Dead and I was just and, about to say Brain Dead just completely yeah just shows. very very tactile you know super analog feeling cool old school stuff I suppose that's what I want that's what I'm trying to get at is there does that interest you I know you've dealt with it with um, District Nine as we've just mentioned with some of the technology in the cameras but you know that stranger things that poltergeist feel that kind of real i know it's retro and they're using good technology oh, yeah, at the for time, sure, but for you sure. know, that's it's, the trip 
absolutely down memory lane and give us some nostalgia using the old school practical effects again but it's, you know? it's kind of like it's kind of like late gen x nostalgia you know what i mean it's like it's very it's specific to us like i i speak to my daughter a lot about about what's nostalgic to her you know it's very it's very it's super interesting i mean going back to cars as well my obsession with cars yeah. it's like people have this with cars too it's like what was the what was the car that you were obsessed with as a kid you know and it's like as you go through these generations like two cars that i'm personally obsessed with is a ferrari f355 and the original honda nsx that's yeah. because i was like 13 or 12 when those cars you know came out right 14 13 15 somewhere in that zone and today all of a sudden those are becoming collectors cars so like they're they're and and it's each generation you can see it happen so there's something kind of amazing about the concept of you if you imagine in 2040 doing doing digital tech uh, TikTok kind of borderline Instagram filter retro, like that's nostalgic. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's just generation by generation. But for me, yes. Poltergeist, what, what stranger things was riff, riffing on anything from the eighties. It's like, it would be super fun to do something in there. I, I actually love, um, grindhouse, uh, you know Rod Rodriguez and and Tarantino's Grindhouse, like I love those, and I really love Rodriguez's film um, Planet Terra. That's amazing. It's not exactly the same as what you're saying. It is different to what you're saying because it's obviously like Grindhouse, like B B film, but the 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 leaning fully into that genre and just doing it, you know, uh, it, it was felt like a video nasty. So it sounded like one of those ones yeah. that you know your mates would be so like, good. Oh, "Have you seen this?" And you're like, yeah. "Where did you find that?" It's like under my dad's so bed. Like it's so good, but um. And that wasn't too long ago, and it worked, and everyone absolutely loved it, and yeah. took them down that nostalgia trip again. You so. know, you, riffing on the on the video nasty uh, term or the concept of that, um, one of the best things I've ever heard in my life like that is so uh, the director Panos Cosmatos lives lives in Vancouver, and I know him, and he one of the films that he's done that I'm obsessed with that I just love is the is the Black Mirror uh, Beyond the Black Mirror. Beyond yeah. the Black Rainbow, sorry. Beyond the Black Rainbow. And his, what, he self-funded that movie. And the way that he described it to me was, he's like, you know, when, you, when you're a kid and you're in a VHS store and you saw all of, like, Video Nasty, you saw yeah. all of these, like, fucked up R-rated films and you couldn't rent them and, like, your parents wouldn't get them for you. He's like, Beyond the Black Rainbow is what I imagined would be on one on of those shelves. That's yeah. amazing. And like the whole movie is basically that. So it's it's one of the coolest descriptions for the, you know, the genesis of a movie like I've ever heard it's of. It's like the VHS you weren't allowed. Yeah, exactly. Or what he, what he imagined might be on that tape. I love you know? all those though. Even stuff like okay. um Basket Case. Have you ever seen that? Like yeah. really, that's that's like yeah. really fucked up and um yeah. those classics are just there's a reason why they still are so beloved today. Totally. I, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of them that I don't know the names of that I just know the images where it's like, man, that is some crazy shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's not going to be your next film. No. Not a reimagining of Basket right Case. <laughs> <laughs> Straight off the back of Gran Turismo. Yeah. So what is it looking like then? Are you going to have a couple of months off before you start doing these next film? Because you, you must be exhausted from Gran Turismo. Like you must, your brain probably needs just a bit of normal life, being a dad, being a, you know, mm, yeah, that would be good. Family man. And just, just, just chill out for a bit. Eating at the um, right times and sleeping at yeah. the right times. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I, I think I'm probably going to start working pretty soon. I feel like you know that already. I'm just, you're just not Maybe. allowed to tell me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I just don't want to admit it to myself. No. And what I always do on the podcast, and you've been asked the question, but it's always interesting for me, is the last piece of music that's played after we've done today's interview is chosen by you. So is there a song that you absolutely love that you would hmm. love to play out? It can be any song in the world. Okay, well, this is gonna. This is kind. This is kind of insane. But I'm gonna. I'm gonna go with this one because I was listening to it yesterday and I like it. Uh, I'm gonna go with Cobra Style from Robin. Wow, I've yeah. not heard a lot of Robin, but um, I know the big singles. But the reason for it is because I saw Barbie and I kind of really liked Barbie. Yeah, and it was great fun. It was. Just, yeah, it made me want to totally go to the cinema it. again. That and Oppenheimer together was just amazing. And. Uh, 
there's a track in there by Charlie XCX, which when it came on in the film, I was like, this is Cobra style from Robin. And, uh, and then I have to go and find it. And it's, it's, it, cause I know it wasn't Cobra style. It's a remix, but it was Charlie XCX kind of riffing on it. So it made me think of it. Then I listened to Cobra style. So I'm going out with that track. And is it just because you just loved it in the film and it made you want to listen to it? Or is it just because you just love the track? I like all of it. That's amazing. Yeah. What sort of bands do you listen to? This doesn't need to go on the podcast, but I'm I'm curious what sort of music you listen to. I listen to so much music. I mean, it's like music is a huge a huge part of of sort of linked to being creative for me. Yeah. Um, but if I had to boil it down, it would probably be like one of my favorite artists of all time is Gary Newman. Right. I absolutely Legend. love yeah. love Gary Newman. But but anything anything in the kind of synth pop to uh to like dark wave industrial anything anything kind of in that zone i'm i'm extremely extremely into so like i mean there's there's too many there's too many to name in in a more contemporary setting um something like pumped up kicks by three teeth would be like a good would be a good example of something that it's a bit more modern version of something that i like uh but yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much constantly listening to music. Have you checked out the band? And I'm not paid to plug them or anything, but have you listened to the band Sleep Token? No. They're like a modern day what, what genre. Is that? It's 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 very much like um, a modern day Nine Inch Nails, but with a bit more oomph to it and a bit more angst. Hmm. That it's, sounds cool. It's it's mind blowing, dude. They've just um, Sleep Token. Su- Sleep Token. They've just been supported, um, supporting Slipknot on their world tour. Okay. And they've got a new album out, um, and it's a masterpiece. Like, I'm not sure if you'll dig it straight away, but it'll get into your system, and it's it's powerful. It's really decent, and they're going to be the biggest thing. Like, they're already there's a um, venue in the UK called Wembley Arena, and they sold it out in four minutes, ten thousand mm. tickets. So mm. people know what they're doing, but they're unbelievable. Okay. Give them a go. And I yeah, think, thank you. I think you'll dig them. I think you'll really like them. Um, and just start with the new album. I've forgotten what it's called, but um, it's the latest album. Okay, absolutely. And let me know what you think. You might hate it, but um, I think you'll love it, especially with the stuff you've just been talking about today. Yeah, no, I'm sure I'll be into it. Take Me Back to Eden is their brand new album, but it starts with a song called Chokehold. Listen to that and tell me what you think. Okay. I appreciate you coming back on, dude. It's been good to talk to you and not talk about District 10, which you always get asked about, and every fucking story about Robocop. So it's been nice and refreshing to talk about something else. Agreed. I bet you're sick to death of it now. Yeah, I am, I am tired of talking about those, those movies. Good. We, yeah. It's been nice not to talk about it. But um, yeah. I would really like you to come back on and talk about Chappie, if that's a good review, with my manager. Yeah, that sounds cool. Shrine, and we'll just talk about it. Um, Awesome. I'll let you go and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, thanks for coming back on, dude. And uh, yeah, I'll drop you an email soon. Thank you, man. All right. So there it is. There's my interview with me and my good friend, Neil Blomkamp, an amazing director, a great all-round guy, and just a pleasure to have back on the podcast. And as I said, this is his fourth time, and I really hope he comes back for more in the near future. Because I got really excited when he started talking about his new sci-fi and horror projects and so much more. You'll see as well, I don't want to disrespect Neil and start asking him again about Alien and all this stuff about the unfinished film and Robocop. It's all about respecting the guests that come on the podcast and you heard today, we wanted to talk about his brand new film and if you haven't checked out Gran Turismo, go and do it because I honestly think you'll absolutely love it. And then hit me up on any of my socials and let me know what you think. I've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I've just launched TikTok. I feel like I need to be one of the cool kids and get it out there on there as well. So if you want to go on there, it's literally at Mark and Me Podcast. And I'll keep on bringing you videos on there too. But my main thing at the moment is my YouTube channel. So if you're listening to this, please go on there. Give a thumbs up to the videos you watch. Share them and obviously subscribe. It makes a massive difference. And I'm going to be working really hard to bring you loads of new videos as often as I can. 
I can't do this podcast without support from the people out there that listen. So if you've listened to today's episode and you've enjoyed it, hit the share button on Facebook, hit the retweet button on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it, put it as part of your Instagram stories or just like it because it really does mean that then this podcast gets seen by new people and that's the best way to market a podcast. I'm an independent one-man team. I say each and every time because I think sometimes people think that I'm this team that have a whole big group of people working for me it isn't like that at all it's just me so any marketing that you do for me goes a long long way and I don't have a budget I don't make money off this podcast I do it for the love of talking to people but if you do want to give me something for it I do have a Patreon account and that basically allows me to then put the podcasts on sites like Amazon Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all this costs money. So all the money that comes in via my Patreon helps me carry on this podcast. So if you can go on markandme.com, click the Patreon link and sign up, you'll get a welcome pack, you'll get badges, stickers, you'll get exclusive episodes, competitions, and so, so much more. Right, I've got so much to do. I've got so much editing to do. I've got interviews coming really, really fast at the moment and I can't wait to share them all with you very soon. But just before I go, I want to give a big shout out to Folio Society and Richard Sounds, both the main sponsors of this podcast, really supportive each and every month. So if you're in the market for a sexy new book, go on foliosociety.com or if you want to get yourself a brand new TV or hi-fi system, then why not go on richersounds.com. Right, that's everything for me for this episode. So until then, look after yourself, go and watch Gran Turismo, take care and I'll speak to you all very soon. Trigger, I don't press people button. Nobody chaps gon' face me with something. Like how I have 22 and them is something. Dennis for you, so who gon' get the next dozen? I press trigger, I don't press people button. button. Nobody chaps gon' face me with something. something. Like how I have 22 and them is something. Dennis for you, so who gon' get the next dozen? Ooh.
day, friend, and then bad mouth again. Uh.